Welcome to the podcast page for Christ-Centered Lessons. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14, we're told, You must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Within these few passages, Paul lays out for us God's desire for us, that we might from an early point in life, childhood, know who he is, know who he is through his holy word. And that our knowing God will make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And this faith we know is true because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The passages tell us that to have faith in God and to who who he is means that we must have a faith in Jesus Christ. Christ says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Further down in verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. God the Father sent God the Son to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life, that through that perfect sacrifice, his blood shed on the cross might save us as we come into contact with it through the waters of baptism and that we will have the hope of eternal salvation and eternity with God in heaven and also with Jesus Christ. This faith that Paul speaks of is so important to us because we live in an age of doubt, skepticism, and even outright antagonism toward God and Christianity itself. And Christians are daily confronted with this confrontational unbelief. And there are some that struggle with a faith weakened by doubt. But my friends, to survive, we must work daily to deepen our faith so that we'll be strong enough to face the challenges of life. And that faith only comes from the word of God. Paul later says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith can only come from our study, our knowledge, our application in our lives of the word of God. Well, some will say, well, how's, how do you gain faith? Well, Christianity is a religion of faith. And one aspect of faith is that there is some quantity that is unknown. Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
But the fact that there is some unknown or unsome, unsome, some unseen quantity involved does not mean that the faith is based on a complete lack of information. As a matter of fact, we know faith requires information and that saving faith is built upon the evidence found in God's word. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So there's sufficient evidence for a strong and a vibrant faith available to us. The problem and the challenge that we have is our utilization of that faith. You see, any belief or act that is not based upon some knowledge cannot truly be called faith. That's why it's so important when we talk about Christian evidences. The study of those facts and that information that confirm the reliability and the truthfulness of what Christianity claims. And it further suggests the ability to give an adequate defense of one's faith. The benefits of a strong faith, my friends, are obvious. There's great joy in believing, Philippians 1.25, but not in doubt and fear. You see, faith gives us victory over Satan and over a a wicked world, 1 John 5.4. And faith makes the hope of heaven a sure conviction, as we've already seen in several passages already. And it's with this deep faith that we're able to help those who are struggling with doubt and unbelief. Because, see, faith gives us a confidence in speaking God's truth to others. See, Paul confirms it when he says, I believe and therefore or I believed and therefore I did I did I speak, 2 Corinthians 4.13. You see, it's with strong faith that we can show just how weak the arguments of our opponents are. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6.16, 6, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And again to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.12, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life. My friends, we have to have faith because man sinned. And when man sinned, we were separated from God. And so we have to have something that reconciles us back to God. And our faith is an essential principle in man's redemption. In Hebrews eleven six, we're told, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. Not Hard, it's impossible to please him, God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder to them that diligently seek him. In seeking God, we must believe him and in believing him, we must be obedient to him. See, faith is so vital in man's redemption that the gospel of redemption is called the faith. That's why in Jude 3, we're told, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So that's the objective basis of redemption is called the faith. And this ties together revelation on which faith rests and the essential nature of faith. Again, that's why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you see, faith and the obedience to that faith is not only the way to heaven, it's the way of life here on earth. 
You see, the, the mistake of a multitude is that the fa- is the failure to understand this vital truth, that faith is not only the way to heaven, but it's the way of life while here on earth. I believe one of the reasons that so many in the church are so lukewarm in service and unhappy in life is that, he, that they think the faith has to do only with the way to heaven and that it has no connection with daily living. And many Christians, whether they're conscious of it or not, fall into this category. You see, faith is a way of living as as well as the way of salvation. And faith is to be exercised every day and in all relationships and activities in which we participate. You see, faith is not something that is limited to the way one becomes a Christian and, and then thus the way we worship. Faith is, a, is to be a way of life at home and at work and at play. And in short, faith is a controlling principle of the life of a Christian. You see, as we begin our study of the book of Romans, we see the beautiful complementary nature of that book to the book of Acts. When Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, we see the apostles waited in Jerusalem until that Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And Peter preached a message as well as others to those who had been doubters of Jesus, those who had yelled, crucify him, that he was the Son of God, that they had sacrificed, they had put to death the Son of God and his blood was upon them. His message so powerful made them believe and they yelled out in Acts 2, what shall we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. We see in Acts the way the Christians lived in the first century. Romans tells us why they lived the way they did. You see, the book of Romans contains a unique message concerning God's plan for man's righteousness. This plan involves a recognition of man's sinful state. Romans chapter 1, Paul tells the Gentiles that they have sinned against God. Chapter 2 tells the Jews that they have sinned against God. And so this recognition of man's sinful state, and we see it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as a sinful creature, we need a way back to God. We need to be reconciled to the right relationship with God. And so Romans tells us that the need is to have an obedient faith in God. And that that obedient faith is only found in the offering of a perfect sacrifice in the person of Jesus the Christ to reconcile man to God. And Romans gives us the instructions for obtaining that reconciliation. And then continuing on in that state of reconciliation. We see a perfect example of this principle in Acts 8 beginning in verse 36 and 37, where we're told, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, the Ethiopian had listened carefully to this young man named Philip explain what Isaiah's prophecy was all about as well as the rest of the law. Also the Psalms and the prophets that had to be fulfilled. And Philip pointed out how how one called Jesus of Nazareth had accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his miraculous resurrection, all the Jewish prophecies of old. And then Philip taught him that one could receive all of God's promised blessings through this Jesus by believing in his name, repenting of one's sins and being baptized for the remission of those sins. We saw the response. The Ethiopian turned to Philip and asked, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? You see, we see the candor of a man recognizing his own sinful state and asking Philip, what do I do? I don't want to go one more moment without a right relationship with God. And Philip says to him, if you believe with all your heart, if you have the faith, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that he came, that he sacrificed himself, that his blood was shed, and that that blood come in contact through the waters of baptism and can wash away your sins, you may. If you believe with all your heart, and he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we see that the chariot was halted beside the road And together, the two very different men walked down into the water where Philip immersed the Ethiopian in that water. His sins washed as it comes, as he comes in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and he was raised up again sinless. The new man and together they walked out of the water and he went on his way rejoicing. My friends, as we study the book of Romans over the coming weeks and months, we're not just going to read the passages. We are going to study each and every word of the passage to help us understand the context of what Paul is saying and what it means to our lives. As we look at the book of Romans, we have without question that Paul is the author We have both internal evidence beginning in Romans 1.1 and then verse 13. And then there's also external evidence such as uh, comments such as uh, from men of of Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, and Arrhenius, all talking about Paul being the author of this letter. We know very little about the church at Rome other than the fact that their faith, Romans 1.8, is proclaimed throughout the whole world. And to think of the significance of this, this, my friends, is that this is a church in the heart of a destitute, sinful part of the world. Rome, a center of decadence, idolatry, persecution, particularly when you talk about Christianity, the the fact that it was very difficult to live and make a living because of the persecution and the prejudice that you found against Christians. But as again, we look at this particular letter written to the 
church at Rome, evidence points to a period of it being written around 57, 58 AD. Again, Paul being in Corinth on his third missionary journey. prior to him going to Jerusalem to deliver the Benevolent Fund. And we see that Paul was in Corinth for about three months prior to his Jerusalem departure. We know the church in Rome was established at least uh, uh, as far back as AD 49 because the church in Rome had grown to the size that Claudius had issued an edict to ban all Jews from Rome. Why? because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But as we look at this particular book, it was written to the Church of Rome. Again, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, and it's believed to have had a population of about 800,000 people at this time. And like I said, while we do not know a whole lot about the establishment of the Church at Rome, I think we can believe it was, it was most probably established uh, by Jews who had left uh, Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. There is no evidence, as some have claimed, that Paul had ever been to Rome when he wrote this epistle. And in fact, he talks about the fact that his desire is to come to them. Again, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. That is, that I with you may be comforted in you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to be able to provide some spiritual gifts to those in the church at Rome, but he also wants to strengthen their faith, and he wants them to be able to strengthen his. One of the strongest teachings of the book of Romans is the fact that Paul wanted the church in Rome to understand that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation for all mankind, both Jews and Greeks, Romans 1.16. He wanted to tell them about the great desire he had that Gentiles obey the gospel, that Jews obey the gospel. And to impart to them that their faith could only be grown through a study of God's word. Is that a challenge for us today? Absolutely, because again, in our world, so many don't understand that the Bible is the objective standard by which our faith is based. They, they try to look at some subjective standard, some personal individual bias or prejudice, such as feelings or formal creeds or dreams or conscience or common sense. But we can't be guided by those because God's word is unchanging. It's the same today as it was 10,000 years ago. All of us will be judged by that same word. Paul provides to the Gentiles the knowledge that they had failed to acknowledge the eternal power and divine nature of God as revealed in the world around them. And that their subsequent pride and idolatry had exposed them to God's wrath from heaven. And Jews, in chapter 2, he says, are without excuse and were condemned. He points out that they are in danger of God's righteous judgment and he will render to each one according to his deeds. 
You see, this judgment that he talks about in chapter 2 will offer either eternal life or wrath and indignation, given without impartiality. And again, that's why he says, the gospel is a power unto salvation for both the Jews and for the Greeks. And that decision about whether eternal life or wrath and indignation is going to come based upon one's faith and obedience to God. Each of the 16 chapters are going to bring to us a great understanding of God's desire for us. Again, the theme, the gospel is God's power to save, that all men need salvation, and that man can only be saved by faith through the gospel. And how do we live a faithful Christian life? But my friends, as we study the book of Romans and its unique message concerning God's plans for man's righteousness, there are some aspects that I want us to also look at to negate false doctrines that are in the world today. The first is the false doctrine of salvation by faith only. It's always seemed incredible to me that so many have gotten the false idea that the book of Romans teaches salvation by faith without obedience, especially without the need of baptism. The, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans that it is not simply faith alone that saves, but that obedience is necessary. And in my opinion, it's one of the strongest statements in chapter 6 regarding what baptism does. And in fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes it plain in the strongest of language that obedience is going to be one of the standards of judgment. He says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasured up for thyself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his works, to them that by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and incorruption, eternal life but unto them that are factious and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness shall be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that worketh evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no respect of persons with God. That's found in Romans chapter two, verses five through 10. Notice particularly Romans chapter 2 verse 6 that the righteous judgment of God will consist of rendering to every man according to his works. And the denominational world never read this verse? Have our brethren in the Lord's church who are now teaching salvation by faith alone without the necessity of baptism forgotten this verse? Are those who say we're under no law today ignorant of this verse? You see, in this book, which so many pervert to teach that baptism is not necessary for salvation, Paul makes an extremely strong statement, as I said before in Romans chapter 6. Listen to this passage. Are you ignorant that you are ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness 
of his resurrection. We're baptized into Christ Jesus in whom all spiritual blessings are located. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing into the heavenly places in Christ. You see, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. Is it important to be in Christ? Is it necessary to be in Christ? Of course it is. How do we get into Christ? We're baptized into Christ, Paul says, Romans 6, 3 through 5. Paul repeats this same message in Galatians. In Galatians 3, 26 through 20 and 27, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were, what? Baptized into Christ, did put on Christ. If I put on Christ by being baptized into Christ, if I'm not baptized, I cannot put on Jesus Christ. Yes, we're sons of God through faith, but how? By being baptized into Christ. Who are in Christ? As many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul says we're also baptized into his death. Is the death of Jesus Christ important? Well, absolutely. Is the death of Jesus Christ necessary in our salvation? Is the death of Jesus Christ necessary to the scheme of redemption? Of course, of course it is to all of those questions. We're baptized into his death. I mean, what stronger claim for baptism could be made? In baptism, we reach the benefits of the death of Christ. And how dare anyone say we're saved before or without water baptism? In fact, I would say to you today that the statement in Romans 6 is so strong and that so many have felt the force of what Paul is saying that they try and spiritualize the baptism here. They say, this cannot be water baptism. This is some sort of figurative baptism. And the only reason for making such an absurd statement is to try to escape the force of what Paul's teaching. He's saying in Romans 6, 4, that we're not only baptized into Christ's death, but we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. When did this newness of life begin? It begins when we're raised from the waters of baptism. Why? Because the baptism washes away our sins. Don't forget what he says in Romans 6, 5. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also, or shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Later on in verses 16 and 18 of, of Romans 6, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye present yourselves as servants unto obedience, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sins unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But thanks be to God that whereas ye were servants of sin, ye became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching whereunto ye were delivered. And being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. We can only become servants of righteousness once we're made free of sin. How are we made free of sin? By being washed in the waters of baptism to be raised anew, to walk in the newness of life. See, there's no reason that people should be confused over the condition of salvation. It's a simple matter. It's that of an obedient faith. His servants, God's servants, 
are those who obey. It's just that simple. See, men try to complicate things when they don't want to believe what the scripture plainly teaches. And when they're trying to escape the force of the word of God, the complications are introduced. Perfect example, what does Jesus teach in Matthew 19.9 regarding marriage, divorce, or remarriage? It's not complicated. The complication arises when men do not want to believe what Jesus said. They arise when they try to escape what the Lord says, and this is the same with baptism. The law has changed. We don't live under the law of Moses, but we live under the gospel of Jesus Christ. The principles of which God deals with man have not changed. God demanded faithful obedience from those who lived under the law of Moses and requires the same of all of us today under the gospel. Well, some will say, well, aren't you saying that then baptism is a work? Well, it's a work of obedience. You see, when Paul stresses in Romans that we're not saved by works in Romans 4, he's speaking of works done separately and apart from faith in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about works of faith, the obedience of faith. He would agree with what James says regarding Abraham and that thou seest that faith wrought with his works and by works was made, faith made perfect. That is works, faith worked with Abraham's works and by works was faith made perfect. Works that work with faith are nowhere condemned in the Bible. See, we're talking about the difference between works of personal merit or works of the obedience of faith. Works done realizing that we're not saved by merit, but rather by the grace of God upon the conditions of the gospel, which is the condition of our obedience. The theme of the book of Romans we've already talked about is Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greeks. See, we're saved by the power of the gospel. We're saved by the facts of the gospel, the events that occurred in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Now I make known unto you, brethren, the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, wherein also ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye hold fast the word which I preached unto you, except you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he has been raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ constitutes the facts of the gospel. And these events provide the basis of our salvation. If it were not for these things, we could not be saved. I hope you will learn throughout our studies that the gospel includes the commands to believe in Christ, to repent of our sins, to be baptized. And no one can obey the gospel without obeying these commands. No one can be saved by the gospel without obedience to these commands. And as Paul points out later in Romans, we must preach the gospel if people are going to hear, if they're going to believe it and they're going to obey it. He says in Romans 10, 13 through 17, 
For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Even as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. And then in verse 17, he says, so belief cometh of hearing and hearing by the word of God. The second false doctrine that I think we need to focus on as our studies of the book of Roman proceed is the atheistic agnostic perversions that we see today. After declaring the theme of the book of Romans, Paul immediately begins discussing the situation of the Gentiles before Christ and their lost conditions. They weren't lost due to their, uh, they were not lost due to their ignorance of the existence of God, but in spite of their knowledge of God. He declares not only that the knowledge of God is available, but that he is in fact known. He says in verse 19 of chapter one, because that which is known of God is manifest in them, for God manifested it unto them. See, God manifested it or made clear through his creation. And as we look all around us, how can we deny that there is a creator? The ignorance of a Big Bang Theory theology is, is, is just unbelievable. That this could just happen is nonsense. God created. Verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says, The invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, that they may be without excuse. He then declares that they knew God. Knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks. You see, God had given them all the evidence they needed to come to a full realization that he is, just as he has done for us. And Paul makes it clear that instead of knowing God, they refuse to have God in their knowledge. There is such a thing, my friends, as willful ignorance. Those who refuse to acknowledge the existence of God do so willfully. They refuse to have God in their knowledge. Paul's not the first one to bring this to our, our attention. You go back to Psalms 14, 1 and Psalms 53, when the Bible declares, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. One who believes there is no God, the scriptures say, must be a fool. Job declared in Job 28, 28, behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. If the fear of the Lord is wisdom, the one who rejects the Lord completely becomes of necessity a fool. You see, an atheist is unable to live consistently with his beliefs. For if there is no God, there's no real right or wrong. There is no value at all but what man has imagined. We should note that there are two things Paul attributes to the refusal of God, having God in one's knowledge. In Romans 1, 26 and 27, he talks about homosexuality. And then in verse 31, being without natural affection, which is 
which perfectly describes those who kill their unborn children. These are two abominations that characterize the ungodly society back then and that exists with us today. The third perversion that we will look at is the Calvinistic perversion. The Calvinists have perverted some of the statements in Romans 5 and to, to attempt to make them uh, teach a doctrine of original sin. That is, each of us is born into the world guilty of sin. But if Adam's first sin was transmitted to his descendants, why was not his second sin transmitted also? You see, the doctrine of original sin is made absurd when one understands what sin truly is. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. You see, to transgress means to go beyond the line or the boundary that's been set. Sin is not simply human weakness. Human weakness may lead to sin, but man is not a sinner just because he is weak. We have to transgress God's law in order to be a sinner. Sin's not inherited. Sin is an act. It's an act of the mind. It's an act of the body. But there is no sin that is not an act. See, many have perverted statements in Roman H to teach the doctrine of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. And we will deal with that a great, uh, a great amount of the time of, of that study. But we've got to keep in mind that those in the first century had miraculous gifts that are not available to us today. Some of the things that Paul talks about in Romans 8 may in fact have reference to that special situation. But what those gifts of the Spirit did for the first century Christians, the written word of God does for us today. One who's taught, led, directed, and edified by the written word today is led, directed, and edified by the Holy Spirit by means of that word. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, the scripture is sufficient to furnish us completely unto every good work. We don't need anything more to sustain us here and lead us to heaven. Some use Romans 8, 31 through 39 to teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved. There is no perversion of the scripture that is more thoroughly refuted by scripture itself on almost every page than this doctrine. The Bible makes it clear that our sin will separate us from God. Isaiah 59, 2 said, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you so that you will not hear. And we'll see in Acts the case of Simon, who was baptized, yet sinned, and Peter told him to repent. Some have taught that God automatically forgives a Christian if he sins without any conscience, repentance, or prayer on his part. But the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we have to do? We have to confess our sins. Acts 17.30 says, Now he commands men that they should all everywhere repent. What must we do? We must acknowledge that we sin. Paul tells us, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. Romans 9 has been perverted by some to teach the doctrine of predestination, that God, before he ever created man, predestined and foreordained certain persons to everlasting punishment, 
and others to everlasting life, and that he did this arbitrarily with no regard to their behavior. I will admit to you that there is predestination, but the predestination talks about those who are obedient to God, who are his children, not to individual names. Our obedience will determine our destination. There's also the perversion of premillennialism. Some verses in Roman 11 have been perverted to teach a peculiar doctrine of premillennialism that all of fleshly Israel will one day be converted to Christianity and then dispensational premillennialism teaches that the Jews are yet today God's chosen people and that he still has a special mission for them. Paul refutes both of these doctrines completely in the scriptures. My friends, the book of Romans is so rich with teachings that we need to understand and that we need to apply in our lives. And as we move forward, beginning in our next class on Romans chapter one, I can assure you that we're not going to rush through, that we are going to take as much time with each class to understand what God's word is for us and to ensure that we're able to apply it to our lives to bring glory to God and to ensure that we can spend eternity with him. May God bless you as we begin our studies next week on the book of Romans.